Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Good. It's early. Yeah, it is early. You're being a a team player today. I'm being a little bit of a team player. You're always a team player, but today you really stepped up to the mic plate. Mm -hmm. I stepped up to the mic plate. (laughs) You uh, really got your game face on and are Mm -hmm. willing to put some points on that board. Uh Uh-huh. I'm racking up the points on the mic plate board. Whoever racks up more points on the mic plate board is going to be the team that wins this particular game of ball. That's exactly right. That is, you know, we are in the seed. We're in the seed zone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're totally <laughs> in the bracket. That sounds like some kind of a porno, I guess a sperm Ooh, whale. The seed zone? Yeah, That's like a sea that, world that had a sperm whale. Let's start something over. Something that maybe a fluffer would have to <clears throat> A fluffer. In. Isn't that a nice term? A fluffer would have to be in the seed zone. You think fluffing is really a thing? Times have changed. Mm. I think back in the old days, fluffing was absolutely a thing. But nowadays... It's all about the pharmaceuticals. Well, the thing is, nowadays, there's a whole group of people, probably, absolutely, a whole group of people, that what they're really into is the is the fluffer girl or, or boy. Mm, yes. You know, like in the old days, it was like, oh, you're not, you're not ready to, you're not ready for prime time. You're just a, you're fluffer level. <laughs> but now... <laughs> It's like you're, you're saying they could get their own following. Like I'm a saying, now keep the cameras rolling. There's no, there's no distinction between star and fluffer now. You know, in the in the contemporary SAT analogy question, I think like the journalist is to the blogger as the porn star is to the fluffer. Mm. I think you could probably get a hell of a following today. Yeah, absolutely, you'd have a whole like you know, you'd have your own fluffer channel, fluff network, and uh, and you wouldn't. But the thing is, you wouldn't even. You wouldn't even say like, "Oh, I was a fluffer." Or I am a fluffer. It'd just be like, "No, this is this is me." I'm, you know, like I have a little bit of a mustache, and this is my channel. <laughs> and, and people are like, "I love it." I sign up for that. I could definitely see a reality show. Um, let's see, maybe called Fluff You, and it it would be a show about a really about the a, university that they go to to learn how to fluff. No, no, no. Well, it could be sure. Well, let's you know a keep it in the blue sky for now. I think it would be about like following along, you know, like sort of like a lifetime kind of thing. Not lifetime, a uh, you know, like a Project Runway type thing, or huh. like Rachel Zoe. Like you'd follow around, like a, not that she's a fluffer, but you'd follow around one of the up and comers, if you like, uh-huh. or even a preeminent fluffer. You could get somebody who's at the uh, top of their game. Yeah, somebody that's that uh, is like the iman of fluffers. Okay, wait, hang on, I got it. Write it on the sky. It's right. called the comeback. Oh, and it's about somebody. It's about somebody who used to be like the, the it's one of those like um, uh, Deborah Winger, the Deborah Winger of fluffing. Not that it has to be a woman, but it's right. somebody who was unquestionably the top fluffer in the game. Annie Sprinkles Fluffer. Do you think she right? needs a fluffer? Well, but what I, that's what I'm saying. Like I'm sure the old porn stars all had their all had their like understudy. Oh, uh, <laughs> was like literally, if you will, if you will, uh, it was like their fluffer that kind of you yeah. know, they traveled together. Of course, as you do. Hmm? Yeah, but I mean, I think what would happen is that I think that the comeback would probably be the result, if you like, of probably a an independent documentary featuring tons of uh, porn right. stars from the seventies talking about how nobody fluffs. Right, like it's, it would be like that movie that recently came out about all the backing singers, singers exactly. the famous bands, except they were the they were the uh, the foreground 
fluffers. Like, okay, if you're going to do a genre documentary at this point, it's got to either be about how food is bad, weed is great, or about some kind of a person who we didn't know we should know about that now we're all crying because we've learned about them. Mm-hmm. Whether that's the Muscle Shoals guys, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, you know, the mo- there's one about the Motown guys. Right, the unsung heroes of X. Except in this case, it's about keeping someone erect for, for an adult film. The unsung heroes of porn. Mm. Who, I mean, there are so many ways, so many documentaries you could make about the unsung heroes of porn. Think about all of the work that's gone into, because, you know, they were laboring in obscurity. They were, they were the cops were kicking down their doors. Yeah. Just recently, Los Angeles made it, uh, made, made it a law that you have to wear a condom now in a, in a, pornographic film filmed in the los angeles area turns out i think it's causing a brain drain or i guess a wiener drain or whatever it is i think that's making people want to leave because they feel like they can't sell that to people yeah people are like i don't want to you know nobody's gonna buy it yeah nobody's gonna buy that for one because that's not the fantasy i had a uh uh, french uh language and lit professor in college who when he was at madison uh worked in a porn theater did clean up in booths yeah he said it was not an it was a kind of an unpleasant job I had a friend uh, named Davey who, uh, uh, punk rock Davey, mm. and Davey, uh, when he... As opposed to fancy society lady Davey. <laughs> yeah, society Davey. Hello! Uh, punk rock Davey used to work in the bars and the clubs, but little by little, I think, burned all his, his, uh, all his bridges so that he was no longer... He never was a bartender. He, was, he never rose above the level, level of barback. <laughs> But uh, and that would be another gra- another but great the, the title the barback. Uh, but uh, but eventually, Davey ended up working at the Apple Theater, which was a porn theater here in Seattle that's now been converted into like an artisanal pork bakery. Mm. But at the time, it was uh, it was still showing thirty five millimeter film, and uh, it was like open all night. I guess they closed for an hour between 7 and 8 a.m. or something like that. And I would sometimes go and sit with Davey in the projection booth, and we would do drugs. <laughs> in the porno twilight. <laughs> we would do drugs and, and watch, uh, and, you know, and he'd be like, you'd, it was, they were full-length pornos, so you would have to change a reel halfway through. You know, it was like, it was like a serious, like going to the movies. And then, and then the theater would be full of people who were just looking for a place to sleep, like, mm-hmm. You know, for for the seven dollar ticket mm. uh, to to get into the movie theater, you could you could spend the night in there. So. It's probably one of the few places. In all seriousness, it's probably one of the few places where, for that amount of money, you could be pretty much guaranteed nobody would touch you. Right. I mean, that's exactly right. You would and get was, the equivalent of like complete privacy for whatever big, an hour. A big, a big part of the uh, a big part of the of the appeal, I think, in the waning days of 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 big city porn theaters. Was just like, yeah, I'm just gonna for seven dollars. I mean, you couldn't get a, you couldn't get a bed in a, at the Saint Vincent de Paul for seven dollars. It's uh, less less stabby, probably. Well, and nobody's gonna preach to you about Jesus for an hour. You don't have to go through any rigmarole. You just go in, and then. Was Davy good at his job? No, Davy was terrible at his job. I I may have told you the story that Davy. Uh, this was. You know, this sense has become a kind of like conventional uh, gag because of the movie Fight Club. But Davy actually would go and splice in uh, 
like so in, in the movie Fight Club, what was it that he was he was splicing in porno into right. regular films, but Davy would splice in car crash scenes and carnage scenes uh, right at the moment of ejaculation. And it was a, I, I believe that the reason that this appeared in Fight Club is that this was a projectionist game that was, in some ways, maybe universal, because Davy was not uh, Davy was not the type of guy to like necessarily dream this up all by himself. But it wasn't like a postmodern project where like people should notice it. It should be like uh, unconscious, completely right? subliminal, subliminal. That he was right at the right at the moment of the like where the porn star was like busting his nut he would mm. he would put just a just an imperceptible uh bit of like vivisection or <laughs> or car crash or like autopsy oh, uh <laughs> footage Whoa. and you know and i don't know and and because that was the that was the the era of uh of like those research uh magazines where i mean yeah. davy Everybody's reading one, what J.G. Ballard is that the crash guy? Yeah, yeah. He it, Davey had one of those bookshelves that was like book autopsy photos, serial killer photos. Oh yes, uh, people that laid down on train tracks. Books like of whole, medical anomalies for people yeah, with neck tattoos. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and 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 I would go to his house and I I'd, I'd be you know it was one of those apartments where there was a there was a bookshelf made out of cinder blocks and then <laughs> a mattress on the floor. And then like 600 beer cans. <laughs> and I would sit and I'd look at his bookshelf and I'm like, Davey, seriously, like, I don't want to look at any of this stuff. And he's like, oh, no, man, you got to check it out. And he'd open up some book with people with elephantitis. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I'm like, well, I seriously, this is you're you're you are engaging in a kind of you, you are you are chasing the the punk rock dragon tail. And it is. It's not. I don't believe you. I, don't I think be- you were just afraid that things were getting a little too <laughs> real. That is but, real, man. That is that shit is real. But the first time he showed me like the the half a foot of film of some <laughs> like brutal uh, brutal murder that he was splicing into these classic seventies porns, <laughs> I was like, okay, I I approve of that. Like you're doing serious psychic damage to people. <laughs> In the service of just like speed the collapse, and I, I, I can't, I can't find fault with it's it. It's kind of like a reverse uh, Ludovico technique, mm. you know, from Clockwork Orange. It's mm-hmm. it, if you imagine if like all the stuff we saw on Cinemax and Showtime had something similar done to it, mm. right? I mean, you could you could really mess with somebody, and it would take it would be a real sleeper cell. I mean, well, ejac- see, ejaculation th- wise. This is maybe what I'm a little bit worried about. The last group of people that need to be additionally fucked with mm-hmm. psychologically are men who are sleeping in a porno theater. <laughs> they, got en- they got enough on their plates. <laughs> right? Like, those are not the people that you want to activate and, and connect their sexuality to violent crime. Like, you know what I mean? Like, of all the people right. in the world, you don't want to send out of the theater with the unhealthy association between orgasm and... You know, and mass violence. Don't, yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it. I came in wanting a nap, but I'm leaving (laughs) wanting to push someone on a subway platform. (laughs) Exactly.
Oh no! Oh, Davy! Oh, Davy! Punk rock, Davy! Punk rock, Davy! I ran into him the other day. I hadn't seen him in fifteen years. Hmm. I ran into him, and probably, probably in the this is even, this is even a faux pas in punk rock circles. But the first thing I said was, "Oh my God! I can't believe you're alive!" <laughs> and he and he he like looked all offended and shocked. And he was like, "I have a kid." And I was like, wow, that's great. You you made it. You grew up. You had a kid. Yeah. And uh, and then I said, what are you doing? He's like, ah, nothing, some temp job. Like, oh, I, find that, I find that so strange to think about. I mean, because, I mean, maybe probably the way it came across and probably legitimately you're like, wow, I can't believe Punk Rock Davey didn't get killed or didn't die at his own die. hand. Yeah, exactly. But like it's so strange to think about all the people you never see. This is how self-involved I am. Is like I think about the dozens or hundreds of people that I have called friends over the years that I'm not in close contact with or not in contact with at all. I don't know their status. Mm. You know, it's I haven't gotten to that age where you like, you know, I read the obits. I flip through the uh, alumni newsletter when it arrives and I find out which professors have recently died. And that always makes me sad. Yeah. But but it's it's strange to think that like there's all these people who like it would be nice to think that they just got stuck on a shelf somewhere and stopped aging and, and everything kind of stayed the same. Because, you know, when you try to imagine your friends today, you think about the punk rock David look different than you expected? Because he should be 15 years younger in your head, right? Well, except that punk rock Davey, A, was punk rock. So he was always a little bit more haggard looking than uh, than he should have been. Even a little, little, little shop worn. Yeah, when he was 21 years old, we used to joke like, ah, 21 is like 45 in punk rock years. <laughs> <laughs> but in fact he made it through the looking glass and now he looks amazing for a, like a 44 year old because he's you know he's slim he's still he's still pretty well groomed i mean he was he was smoking a cigarette in the walking down the street in the middle of the day and i was like yeah smoking a cigarette wow i like that that's still a that's still a thing that that people can do <laughs> They can still be smoking cigarettes. Like, and that, I guess, was the amazing thing. was like when we were 21, it was very easy for a lot of us to adopt a kind of like, I don't care. I am trying to kill myself. Who cares? Right. I'm just going to just die. Who cares if I get cancer? I'm not going to live that long anyway. <laughs> but, it's going to happen fast, man. Like when you're 45 and you have a kid... <laughs> And you're still like, yeah, whatever. I'll just keep smoking until. Can we I- get a brighter light in here? I feel like I stepped on something. <laughs> that's like our house. Our house. It, it looks like uh, like Stalag thirteen. I have so many bright lights because I don't want to step on a Lego and fall down. I hit my head. I just glancingly hit the edge of the table and I die in a freak accident. There it is. That's it. What, that's punk rock now. Whatever happened to Merlin? Oh yeah, he slipped on a gummy bear and <laughs> fell down the stairs. You know those little tiny brown Legos? <laughs> yep. He had a premonition. Yeah, he stepped on it. It got lodged under his toenail, and then he died of an infection. I do think about. I, I don't want to talk about it because it, it'll freak me out. But I, I, I do sometimes think. Uh, well, two things unrelated. Uh, first of all, I don't want to die in a freaky way. If it can be avoided, I would rather not die in some way that's super hard to explain. I, I don't want to die at all if I could avoid it. But you Agreed. know, I, I understand that's probably. You know, something I have to deal with eventually, or something. Yeah, it's will. a little harder to. The second part is a little harder to make. Happen. But, but also, I mean, you know, I, this again, and this is just a credit to my incredible level of self-absorption that I don't periodically just stop and think. I wonder if my friends who were my age in high school are my age now. 
Oh yeah. In my head, there there may be thirty. They maybe they added a couple belt notches. Well, what's scary? You see is them, the, and they're old people. It's, it's scary. So this this, uh, this like this bulking that happens to men when when it's just like you. you it see seems these guys. improbable. They come in, they they enter like Sting and exit like Baron Harkonnen. You're like, <laughs> you, what, what you, happened? I don't understand how God. You see them, and and it's like, okay, you didn't get fat. You're not fat. No, but somehow you look you look wider in every respect your neck is wider like how did your how did your skull get wider yes they just look they look like stretched you see like a pair a pair of eyes a pair of a 19, 19 year old pair of eyes somewhere mm. in there looking out buried and, in a yeah in a meat, <laughs> uh, meat in a, glove. a meat mask of hate shame <laughs> well i was at the i was at the playground the other day and there were a bunch of dads and they were playing baseball they were teaching their sons to play baseball and the sons ranged in age, I think the youngest was probably four, and the oldest was maybe six or seven. And it wasn't T-ball, the, the, the dad was, there was, there was a, a beardy dad, and he was actually pitching the ball, and these kids were getting hits, running the bases, they were fielding, like, th- this was a dedicated group of dads who were, like, on the field with their kids, like, you know, go, let's do it, you know, throw it to second, throw it to second, and I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't. Nobody was like really yelling at the kids, but they were taking baseball. Well, it sounds like it was very focused. Like we're, there's a game we're playing here. There's a structure to this. You must. That's learn right. This. this is how you you need to learn this game if you're going to be a boy in the world. And so I'm watching this game, uh, and I'm thinking like, thank, a thank God I have a daughter, so that I don't have to. Be, so I feel no pressure to be down yelling at her to like round second, right? But also watching the dads, I was like, wait a minute. These guys are my age. Like, some of these guys are younger than me even, and they all look old. They, like, that guy looks exactly like Bob Balaban. And He's totally uh, younger than me, and he looks like <laughs> Bob Balaban. What you know, must I look like? <laughs> and that guy, that guy over there, like, yeah, he looks like Tony Millionaire. Like, this guy looks like Bukowski and these people are these are my peers and they're yelling at their kid about baseball and the, yeah and then I did I suddenly like it was one of those things where I looked at my reflection in a puddle I was like, oh the grotesque I was like, it just as the just a slightly undulating puddle no. I was like wait a minute wait the a image minute. the image the water stills I'm not old gonna... like them <laughs> I better sit down I did have to sit down. I had to sit down and take a get my inhaler out. So yeah, terrifying. Uh, saw Duff McKagan on Portlandia. Well, he looks amazing, but Duff, he's Duff is really like, he's. I like the way that guy carries himself. Yeah, he's carved out of mahogany. Mm-hmm. He is a suave motherfucker. It's he's a, he he's very looks very slender and and very fit, and and he just seems very focused. I really admire it. He's extremely focused and uh, and a very bright. He's a very bright guy. Um, yeah. And, you know, and in, in some ways, like maybe he would be a great example of like a, of a, of a, of a fitness, uh, mentor where it's like, okay, Duff is, Duff is 50 now mm-hmm. and, uh, still in amazing shape and still like youthful in every regard. Like, don't, don't let yourself turn into Bukowski. Instead, like a PSA. <laughs> instead chase after 
the shooting star of Duff McKagan. Chase the Duff. Yeah, I uh, you know remember there's that old uh, anecdote about the two guys are going through the theoretical jungle and the, the tiger starts tearing ass toward him. And the theoretical the fr- tiger? Yeah, it's the theoretical tiger of the anecdote. And uh, one guy starts running, and the other guy goes, "What are you doing? You're not going to yeah. outrun a tiger." And he says, "I don't have to outrun the tiger. I just got to outrun you." Yeah, I that's think- a, that's actually in Alaska. Uh, we we say outrun outrun the bear. Oh, <laughs> you don't have to outrun the bear. In, in, yeah, just yeah. have to outrun you. Hmm. It's a great gag. Sorry that I over-explained. No, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, But I was just going to say, I think that when you get to be like any kind of an agent guru or or sports person or anything, someone that where you – like part of what you do requires that somebody look up to you. I think you just need to look a little better than most other people. Like if you're a guru, like if you're – the thing is, think about like – not Jack LaLanne. That's not a great example. But like you know, you don't have to be – there are so many categorically handsome people in Mm -hmm. their 20s and 30s, and I think that number really drops off after 40. Well, here's an interesting thing I experienced the other day. I went to a meeting downtown uh, with the mayor of Seattle. It was my first official uh, meeting with the mayor. John goes to the mayor. John goes to the mayor, and I'm there with the rest of the Seattle Music Commission. So there's like 10 of us on one side of the table, and then the mayor, the deputy mayor, the assistant deputy mayor, the uh, assistant deputy to the deputy mayor. They're all on one, uh, the other side of the table. And we're talking, about, we're talking about Seattle. We're talking about the future of Seattle. Talking about the waterfront, talking about a lot of big, big projects schools and so forth and in anticipation of going downtown i put on a suit because a i collect suits even though i have no use for them and b because i don't work i spend most of the day just naked walking around in a bathrobe swinging a sword and so when I have a reason to like go so down- many of America's unemployed <laughs> <laughs> when I have a reason to go downtown, I can't bring a sword to the mayor's office first of all, and it's like, oh, I'm going downtown. I have a meeting. I'm going to put on a suit. I'm going to like be a guy who gets dressed up in his clothes to go down to have an important meeting with everybody. <laughs> so I get there, and the first thing about living in the West. San Francisco is the same as Seattle in this regard, is that really you judge the most important person in the room by how shabbily he's dressed, right? Like the the million the billionaires in Seattle all show up to the finest restaurants in town in cargo shorts and fleece jackets. It's it sounds like a really stupid cliche, but in my experience, it's very true. Yeah. Like even even like I don't know I've never seen like I couldn't pick Paul Allen out of a lineup but even when you see guys who are like adventure capital places sure you might see them just wearing fleece but you're never going to see them wearing like a three piece suit that that looks like somebody trying to get a job yeah Paul Allen looks like uh, the the pile of clothes at the bottom of a locker uh, like Paul Allen just is like a it's just, he's just a pile wherever he goes and that's true of everybody like. Uh, you go into you go into a nice restaurant in Seattle, and the best dressed people in there are the waiters. You know, right? And so I'm sitting in this I'm sitting in this meeting, and I've got a tie and a shirt and a and a and a suit and some nice shoes, and I comb my hair, and I'm looking around, and everybody else on the music panel, uh, 
you know, looks like a looks like a dump truck ran into a hot topic. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and the mayor and his like people who have to wear suits are wearing the I have to wear a suit suit. You know, there's a kind of suit that uh, there's a kind of suit that a public servant it's wears. Like, it's like the kind of thing like the costume that your professor wears to graduation <laughs> that like represents their university. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You yeah, wear yeah, that yeah. fruity looking like Oxford thing with a funny hat and a medallion. Yeah. <laughs> like, I would and, never wear this unless I absolutely had to. <laughs> yeah, he's got 11 gold stripes on one side and 14 purple stripes on the other. And <laughs> <A> these, scepter. <laughs> so what these suits, I'm, I'm, I'm studying the suits of the mayor and his staff. And what the suits are meant to communicate is... I am required to wear a suit out of respect for the office, but I'm also a man of the people, and so I am not wearing a nice suit or a fancy suit or like a, a certainly not a chic suit. I am wearing a, I am wearing an affordable suit. But it That's means something. It, you, t- you telegraph many different messages up and down and sideways by what you choose to wear. You have to. It's really. It's. You have to be politic about what you wear, right? right? It's not simply just you want to look powerful. You can't look too powerful. Exactly. And when you see a politician or you know a, a, a person in public service who is wearing a really nice suit, like an expensive slick suit, you automatically distrust that person. And the ill-fitting cheap suit kind of is and, – and I, and I think even even when politicians get to be like – very, very powerful, rich people who are having suits made for them. They get them made in a kind of boxy cut with an unfashionable line. You know what I mean? <laughs> Not nobody's, too shiny. <laughs> nobody's getting a You, you really, don't want to look like a mobster, right? You don't want to look like a mobster, but you also don't want to look like... Yeah, you don't want to look like you're too Hollywood. So anyway, I'm sitting in this meeting, and I'm looking around, and I'm like, I am the fucking Barbie in here. I I am the I'm the person that everyone in the room is going to instinctively take less seriously because I got dressed up for this meeting and in fact got dressed up in the style of a person that never gets to wear his fancy fancy clothes. So I'm here in my I'm here in my suit with my and I'm wearing a like a you know I wore a collar bar and I wore a tie in and i you know i'm like i'm fucking paul f tompkins in here the only thing missing is a watch fob and i realized like oh i can't keep doing this because i you know i i want to walk up to the mayor after this and tell him my plan for a new police academy that i have that i've been slowly percolating in my mind and and they're just not going to they're instinctively going to dismiss me as a as a uh, a fop, like a, or yeah, I was gonna say like a Victorian boy going to a fancy funeral. Exactly. What what I am what I am tra- telegraphing is that I am an amateur, and and I look around at the rest of the the music commission, and everybody's like, you know, there's a guy who when he was buttoning his shirt, he got the buttons wrong, so it's like a, <laughs> one button is up above his collar and one is down, you know, and the and. And like the gals are all chic, but they're all chic in a kind of comfortable. Boy, that's super, that's so super tricky. What kind of person shoes and like like it, there's so much that people, especially other women, can read well, into how somebody is dressed and what they are trying to telegraph. 
the thing is exclusively other women. Men have no like I I am pretty fashion aware and yeah. I I have there I'm incapable of decoding it all. And 99% of the men in the world who are just wearing white athletic yeah, socks. You, you might go like, oh, that, that looks really sharp. Like her clothes fit and she looks awesome. But yeah. one woman would go, oh, that's, oh, that's not Mark. That's Mark by Mark Jacobs. Yeah. And no, you go no, like, no. Oh, what? What does that wow. mean? You're really wearing Topshop to this event? Wow. Bold. Or whatever game they're playing with each other. But I mean, the, they, they all look great, but none of them are... None of them are, what they are projecting is we are women in powerful positions in our respective, uh, our respective realms. And so we do not have to wear like, let's yeah, you, say, you don't have to look like, like Sigourney Weaver in Working Girl. Right. The stuff has to be tailored enough, just enough because we live in Seattle. Yeah. And so, so now I'm, now I have this. Additional, I was having a lot of fun uh, the last couple of years, like buying suits at thrift stores where I would find these old suits and I'd be like, this suit is amazing. I have to have it. And I would take it and then I got a tailor and I was like, you got to tailor this suit because I want it to be like this. And the entire time conscious, of course, that there's no occasion for me to wear a suit. 98% of the time, I, you know, I, I mean, certainly around the house. I'm I'm just dressed like a Saturday Night Live cast member in 1977, uh, and then when I go out, a cocaine sink, <laughs> a top knot and a cocaine sink, uh, and then when I go out, I'm I'm generally like head to toe in wool because I'm never sure that that an electromagnetic pulse isn't going to knock out all the computers that run our cars. It's smart, and I'm going to have to make it to the I'm going to have to make it to the hill country. Before people start eating each other, I'm not going to wear a fucking suit. Life is complicated. <laughs> so what? So what are my occasions to wear a suit? I thought, oh, now I'm a big shot in the city government, right? Uh, now, and now I can't wear suits to that either. But you might look. You might look. You think you're probably thinking like you might look a little eccentric or artistic. But that's the environment, right? It's, it's that. But precise. Did it come off, off costumey? Do you think? Well, uh, oh, beyond costumey. But here's the funny thing. I've been going to these cocktail parties or having meetings with the people on the art commission. And I realized the people on the art commission are all dressed like, like we're in a Fellini movie, <laughs> like the music commission, the music commission uh, just, they grab their clothes from the free pile as they're leaving their apartment building on the way to work. Like, Oh, I need a scarf. What's in the free pile. But the Arts Commission, like, dudes are seriously wearing ascots. People have, people have those Italian shoes that are <clears throat> so pointy that they become like, uh, like Pagliacci shoes. Right. I mean, so really, the people that I need to cutzel up to are the arts people. Like, you know, painters and, and, uh, and the, uh, like the opera people or whatever. They really dress like... Uh, like fruitcakes, which is what I want to do. Much, probably not much at stake at those meetings, I'm guessing. Oh, no. People, you know, <clears throat> this is uh, this has to be true in San Francisco, too. I think it's true all around the world. But uh, whatever it was 25 years ago when they start in, started instituting that 1% for art mm. business, where it's like, well, we're going to rebuild the freeway, and it's a $500 million project. And 
the legislature put this 1% for art clause in all public projects, which means 1% of the total budget of like epic projects has to be set aside for there to be an art component, right? Which is why there's so much publicly funded massive sculpture in big cities. Like you go downtown and it's like, wow, there's a huge stainless steel donut now in front of the city hall. Where did that come from and why? It's like, oh, because we, because we built a tunnel under the bay and it cost a billion dollars. And so well, 1% of that was... Yeah, even if it's like a rounding error, that's, that's, that's pretty serious dough for that kind of community. Millions and millions. And so... That, and then, of course, it's like, oh, this is for art. And immediately, no one wants, you know, immediately, like, no one in government wants to have anything to do with it because art is a lightning rod for, for people to be furious. And so that's why you even have an art commission. You put a bunch of people in ascots around a table and you, and you dump this this uh like a like, like a laundry basket full of money <laughs> yeah like a duffel bag full of cash and you're like okay this is the this is the rounding error from the latest tunnel project figure out how to disperse it and then these guys you know and they all have they they, they have glass they're all wearing glasses that make my most outrageous pair of glasses uh look like something from for that something that you got at costco like you know guys that speak with italian accents that have glasses that are bigger than their head and they then so they the arts commission has cash they have real money interesting uh, and they uh, and will you be are, will your will your committee be interfacing with them our committee is interfacing are with them are you tete a tete are you uh entre new with them well it is we are a little we we are trying to new are trying to entree with them mm. uh in the sense that they have seniority the arts commission is 50 years old whereas the music commission is 5 years old so there's a little bit of they don't they don't appear to be condescending to us, but there is a little bit of like uh, they have a long history of dealing with lots and lots of money, and we are just like, hey, one of the things you could do with that money is give it to us, and then the, then there's a long pause. Everybody looks at their fingernails. We'll see. We'll see. What well, I've got to establish myself as a serious member of this organization, in order that uh, that some of my larger plans be put into place. And uh, I'm not going to get there by like mincing in and my with my <laughs> with my lavender shirt and my collar bar. I love that word. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to start. You know what it is? I think I might wear a suit, but not a tie. That communicates a that communicates a lot of. Does like, that look a little bit Mr. Furley? Well, no, I'm, I'm not wearing a leisure suit. <laughs> okay, just it's not a one piece suit. <laughs> All right. No, I'm gonna like wear a, I'm gonna wear a, a, a sharp suit, but then a, my shirt open, and that's a kind of like. You know, I know you just mean like one button. <laughs> yeah, not like open to my navel. I don't know. I think that that. That's something they're going to have to really think about if they see that. They would have to think about that. Like, if you that. look really good and your shoes are shine, like you say, and your hair is gum, but your shirt is open to your navel in meetings. Yeah. <laughs> You're just kind of sawing away, <laughs> scratching at yourself. 
What's up? We should talk about the easement for. (laughs) We should talk about my plan for the police. (laughs) You're all under arrest. I have a very good plan for the police. Oh, no, really? I do. You know, we talked about the police not very long ago. Yeah, we got a lot of nice feedback about that. I have, I have a, uh, but, but strangely, none from police fraternal organizations. Right. But my plan, my, my plan for the police for Seattle, and I think, this is, I think this will work all across the country, is I think part of the problem of the militarization of the police has been the suburbanization of the police. Mm. Hmm. The cops... When you when you when you talk to any individual cop, the cops and the firemen all live in the suburbs now. Right. They, yeah, they pers- want to get away from all the crime. Exactly. They've pursued the American dream and cop culture and fireman culture is suburbanite culture, which is intrinsically suspicious of people who live in the city. And you know, and it fosters a kind of racist like outer ring uh contempt and dislike for poor people and people who live in town and so my plan for the for uh the uh modernization and like reintegration of the cops is that every city should build a police academy in the heart of town Hmm. oh it becomes like a magnet school kind of thing right exactly like i think part of the problem with the cops too is that We've started to think about police as being a job that requires a four-year degree, and this is uh, this is a subset of a larger problem, which is the inflation, the four-year degree inflation, where now, like, if you want to if you want to manage a Zbart, you have to have a four-year degree. Like, if you want to, if you want to be the person in charge of the Froyo machine at the <laughs> At the Cold Stone Creamery, you have to have a four-year degree. If you want anything that requires a key. Right. Pretty if much. Wanna, if you want to have a, a ring of keys. And just any key. Like, if we were going to let you have anything that isn't... Like, when I worked at McDonald's and th- there was a button you would hit, that would, it would, you, means I put the meat down, it would tell you when it's time to flip it, when it's time to salt it, and so on and so forth. It was actually literally idiot-proof. If you want a job more than that today, you kind of need a college degree, and that's really fucked up. It's really fucked up because A, you don't need a college degree, and B, all It's no those, guarantee of anything. It's not. And then what what that massive influx of people in colleges has done is make colleges worthless. Like colleges aren't doing college job now. Mm-mm. And 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 it became a thing I think it became a thing in the last fifty years that that people in politics were able to say like College. We want everyone to have an opportunity to go to college, and it was a it was an easy thing to say, a harder thing to do, but it was a thing that it was a thing in public life that they could direct money and resources and a lot of like a lot of glad handing attention to. We're going to make college accessible to everyone, and so what they did was not make a a grand college education accessible to everyone. They just made college stupid so that everybody could get into it. And so my thinking is one of the things that we don't need is cops that went to college. Really? They don't need to go to college. They need to go to a great police academy with a curriculum devised by me with the, with the police academy located in the center of town, in the heart of town. 
so that every day you see the young police tra- trainees in their, uh, what I would hope would be like Easter egg colored sweats. And they're running up and they're doing their calisthenics. And <laughs> you want to start them out with a little bit of humility. Is that the idea? You know what I mean? Bring they're them run- down to earth. They're running around the town. They're doing... They're they have doing little, their- little bunny ears with a badge on them. <laughs> they're, they're, doing, uh, they're doing their pull-ups or whatever in the bus stations. <laughs> and, we, and we all get to see the young cops in training. And they are living with us. And their dormitories are right there in the town. And so by the time a by the time a young police person, an aspiring police person, graduates to become a badged officer, right. they are inculcated in the language and culture of the city they intend to police. Shit, they're already a, a resident of an urban neighborhood. That's right. They live in the town and they are they are members of the town and they have trained in the town. So they're not out at some firing range boot camp out in bfe right and they're not they're not being indoctrinated into a culture that lives outside of the city and is and is inherently hostile to the city that's so interesting because it really is it's like something from a bruce lee movie where you go to this almost like a, this guarded temple and everything happens in private It'd be very interesting to have something not not just on, on, honestly not just in in to like embarrass people or something but it'd be kind of interesting to have it in the middle of the city and where people could observe it while it's happening exactly Talk about because, transparency because the concept of policing is is very very basic like the cops themselves are not do not have power their power is the power that we grant them to police us because we need it because we are pig monkeys. And so we say collectively, yes, we need someone to call. We need to, we need to put somebody in a position where we can call them when we need help. And these are the people who you know, we're going to appoint to that. We want them to be young and strong and fleet of foot right. and but also like smart enough and empowered just enough to be able to make judgment calls. We expect them to be people and we expect them to be smart That's right. people. That's right. right. The, the people part is important. And even though we it's acknowledge, yeah, I, precisely. And I mean, even though we acknowledge that we want to be police, we, we want to abide by these rules and we want recourse if something happens. I think that it's also it's it doesn't mean that we're prepared you know there's so much zero or one black and white kind of thinking about these things it's not saying that we're willing like okay when in exchange we will no longer have a civil society where we understand why rules are enforced the way they are <laughs> like if i want if i want to be able to call somebody when somebody steals my marijuana i <laughs> or somebody like parked in my space that means i'm willing to live in a police state that's well yeah right exactly uh, uh, that's good like, john that's pretty good well, and and what got me thinking was I was I was driving along the other day with my daughter, and every time a fire truck goes by or a policeman goes by with their lights on, she's very curious what's going on, and I always say, "Well, the fireman is going to help somebody, or the policeman is going to help somebody," and all of that is part of the part of the like culturization that happened to me when I was growing up which is to be taught that the police are there to help you and the firemen are there to help you. Yeah, help and protect you if something happens. But you also want her to know that if something happens, you can go to somebody in a uniform and tell them about it. Exactly. Like, the police and the fire department are 
are our friends and they are there to help us. So I'm driving along and I'm, I'm describing this to her and she knows this pretty well now. <clears throat> and then I realize the tremendous gulf between the experience that I have had my whole life, even, even during the many years when I was like, fuck the police, man, the police are a bunch of fucking cops, man, who are like trying to like come down on us and like, you know, they represent the man and come down on us. Did you say that already? Cops, man. man. Even all those years when I was like, when I was socially hostile to the cops as part of my rock and roll under underbelly. Like I also understood very clearly that recourse to the law was a thing that was a, was not a right, but that it, it, it involved, it was, it was a participatory aspect of citizenship. And if you were ever going to call the cops, you had better also hold up your end of the bargain by being like for the most part law abiding and a citizen and and the and the contempt i have for most people is this selective citizenship where it's like they call the cops and the fire department when they need help but then they refuse to pay their taxes or they're bull, they're you know they're bullies or they are greedy or they are cheaters in every other aspect of, well, they, of they expect they expect to be extraordinarily protected by the police, while other people are basically exposed to whatever kind of right. shit kicking, bunk flipping bullshit people feel like doing on a given Saturday night. Right, right. I mean, isn't that kind of it? That's the real inequality in some ways. Is I get extraordinary protection because of this, and you get treated that way because well, because of that. Right, and 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 I guess the the. What was happening to me the other day, the brain flip that I was experiencing was I was sitting here teaching my daughter this thing that I feel is fundamental, which is the police and the fire department are there to help you. And then I reflected upon the fact that there are large communities of citizens in my own city who do not see the police that way. And the the fathers in those communities are forced to to teach their daughters a healthy suspicion of the police. Mm -hmm. Like, be careful around the police is kind of the gentlest way that they probably have to describe it. And I'm sure there are plenty of families where the lesson from a very young age is avoid the police at all costs. Like, the police are not your friends. The police will hurt you if they get a chance. Yeah, a kind of of, um, sleeping giant. Like don't right. don't don't just better better to just go take care of this. You're, yeah, because exactly. you're gonna have consequences way beyond getting your redress. If you have problems, call a family member. Call you know, like run to someone who looks like us. But whatever you do, do not attract the attention of the police because it never ends well. And to imagine, to imagine, you know, myself sharing a city and a culture and a and a and a civic life with with groups of fellow Americans who do not have the same recourse to the law and do not feel this, do not feel that the police are there to help them. And I, and, and as, as my daughter gets older, I will for sure say like, don't mouth off to the police. The police are, the police are idiots. Let's be honest. Like they are typically 24 year olds with criminal justice degrees who have been, who are in, Culturated to be unreflective with father issues, 
<laughs> right? Seriously? Like, I mean, don't you think that sometimes? Like, I do. I absolutely like do. They're, they're, they're working out something way beyond criminal justice right now. Well, and the, and the problem is that within the culture that is teaching them and training them, that is encouraged, you know, that, that, that their lieutenants and their captains also have not been fully culturated. They have a, they've been allowed to maintain. It's the problem with the CIA. The CIA is an is somewhat an independent organization, and the pre, and they nominally answer to the president, but in fact, presidents come and go, and the CIA remains, and so the CIA is not does not feel answerable to anybody, and it maintains this inner culture that over time has become infected, and now CIA is separate from the the separate from the balance of power that keeps our government stable and and they become and, and then they end up as a rogue organization and to bring them to heel requires a, like an incredible amount of will from the congress and and the executive and it's a it's it's will that they seldom express, you know, and, like, and and it's going to take a certain amount of what feels like futzing around. Where rather than just waiting for something that's a huge problem that now we have to cover up or whatever, to have an ongoing again that that word transparency, an mm-hmm. ongoing sense that like we need to really know what's happening and yeah. we need to tell people what's happening and we need to make sure that it's what we told people was going to happen. Right, and there needs to be actual effective oversight, civilian oversight of these affairs. That is, that is one hundred percent. Like it, it is not, it is not sufficient that your organization investigate itself and declare that that you have. I mean, this happens in the Seattle Police Department all the time, and it happens in the CIA all the time. Right. But for, like, for security reasons, we can't show you what the results are, but we'll just tell you it turned out great. Yeah, we did an investigation of that thing, and we just we determined that everybody acted properly, and except for there was one thing that we could have done better, and the appropriate measures were taken. And it's just like, okay, no, 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 no. And, and to, to fire everybody is to just, to fire everybody at the top is to just then promote the lieutenants up to, uh, who, who are raised in the same, in the same also, culture. What a, what a terrible self-indictment that is, though, if you think about it. that <laughs> This problem is so out of control that I can't manage it anymore, so I have to fire everyone and start over. Like, where, <laughs> where, else, would that, where else would anything like that be acceptable? Right, and and the only reason that the, the only reason that we're in that situation is that these organizations continue to recruit and and indoctrinate generation after generation into this into what is essentially like an an un uh, they are an unbeholden culture. Anyway, so my plan for the my plan long term for urban police departments is to reintegrate them into urban life. And not a, and 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 ultimately, like if you want a promotion in the Seattle City Police Department, live in Seattle. If you want to, if you want to get your sergeant stripes, live in Seattle. Don't live in Issaquah. If you live in Issaquah, why don't you join the fucking Issaquah Police Department? If you want to work in the Seattle Police Department and you don't want to live in Seattle, then we then you're not sergeant material. You're not lieutenant material, and. That seems like, in some ways, fundamental. I have a good friend who works in the Seattle Fire Department. He's a close friend. And he describes the culture in the fire stations 
as because a lot of these guys they're mustache guys you know what i mean they're mm-hmm. living they're living out they're living on an acre and a half that they're buying with their you know with their inflated union salaries <laughs> And they're out there. I'm sorry, let me just take a quick minute. John, you're listening to the Pacifica Radio Network. This is We Are Pig Monkeys with John and Merlin. We'll be back after this word from Fleece. <laughs> but he, he characterizes the Seattle Police Department inner culture as being like, uh, like uh, uh, basically redneck. Right. Redneck guys. libertarian. They're mustache guys, and they're like, you know, they go, they, and, and, and it's a hard job, right? They're getting, people are dialing 911. Right. And a lot of people are dialing 911 just because they're lonely. And rather than make friends, they pretend they're having a heart attack so that some fireman will come and pet their hair. I gotta remember that one. You should try That's it. That's a good one. Uh, you know, Merlin, I call 911 all the time. <laughs> just to see how things are going. <laughs> I call them just to report like, hey, hey I saw I, hey, I saw a pigeon that was limping. Hey, it's Merlin. Um, <laughs> hey, what's up? Um, I don't have a problem yet, but I just wanted to give you an update on a couple fronts. The fence is still an issue. It's leaning a little bit. I've um, had a lot of coffee today. I've had so much coffee today. I just, ugh, self-harm. <laughs> How are so you? anyway, that's my, that's my project. That's my reform project, but I'm not going to get that. I'm not going to get that happening if I'm wearing a tie bar at these meetings. <laughs> In the music commission. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Roderick, these are, these are fascinating topics you bring to the fore, but they're, they're somewhat beyond the can of this particular committee. <laughs> However, sir, we thank you very much for your, for standing up at this meeting. Mr. Roderick, I've asked Eustace to write all of these down, capture them on a piece of paper. We're going to pass that along to the real event committee. Right now, however, we are discussing <laughs> parking the- <laughs> dedicated parking zones outside the showbox. <laughs> it looks like that was that was a win, though, right? You guys got parking that. zones. We That's pretty that cool. Dedicated parking zones, clearly marked. You know, and in in a city, you know, a city lives and dies by its parking. Mm. So, in a city, if you can get if you can get a, a handle on the parking, if you can get if you can get your hands around the parking. The rest will follow. That's right. You end up in charge. You George Clinton charge. said that, I believe. Mm-hmm. That's good. No, it's really true. It's uh, that's that's the thing, though, and that's why I, I didn't mean to sound glib about the uh, artistic uh, people with uh, Fellini glasses. But uh, in in your case, like, I mean, how how people must take what you guys have to say kind of seriously because mm-hmm. you're influential people, but also it's it is a there's some commerce involved, right? It isn't just spending money on a giant bow and arrow, you know. <laughs> Look at you, San Francisco. But <laughs> no, public art is important. But but in this case, it is also commerce and things that Seattle is well known for, like music. Well, yeah, I, the you don't want to exaggerate that too much, though, right? The, the The problem is, and this is the thing. I think I probably mentioned this before. Like when the when the Rolling Stones played at the Kingdom, uh, there were fifty thousand people there, and everybody was like, "That's incredible." 50,000 people came to see the Rolling Stones. But then the following Wednesday, 50,000 people were there to see the Seahawks lose to the Bears. And you realize, oh, right. 50,000 people there to see the Rolling Stones happens once. But 50,000 people come to watch that stupid football team. Wow. Like every week. Every week. And 
And then there's 60,000 people watching the baseball team and a million more in the region watching it on TV. And you get a sense that music is... I mean, uh, uh, this is this is very complicated from a, from the standpoint of a musician, but like music is important to us in name only, really. You know, every single person at that football game has heard the Rolling Stones, but like they, they probably don't earn, earn, earn they don't own three different sixty dollar Rolling Stones jerseys. And Rolling Absolutely Stones hat, not. they're not paying for an iPhone app that lets them watch the Rolling Stones every single time that they perform. At all. That's and a really interesting way to look at it. And I, I get, in, I get into that. this with people all the time where they're like, blah, 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 albums, blah, 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 music should be free, blah, 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 blah. And I say, you know, an album, a record album that took a year to make costs $10 on uh iTunes, and it's a record that you may listen to a th- 500 times in your life. Listen, as many times as you want on any device that you've got forever, forever. for $10. $10. Or you or- can go to see a movie for $14. And the movie you will watch once, and it lasts an hour. And yet people go see movies you know without reflecting and yet buying an album seems like a big like i don't know if i want to go buy that album jeez you know like buying an album is is some kind of big investment and so so music is like for those of us who who live in in a music world and think about music um it's it's of this it's kind of has this preeminent importance but really the way we value it culturally is like it is the it is window dressing ultimately and so when we try and make an economic argument for music it is legit. Music is a, a, an economic driver. But the mayor is leaving the meeting with us and he's going to meet with the representatives of the construction union. And it's just like, yeah, okay, well, we are, we're, we're a drop in the bucket. Even if you extend the, the reasoning, and I think it's powerful reasoning, they're like, why do people come to Seattle to work at Microsoft? Mm-hmm. If they could, if they can go live in Palo Alto uh, or San Jose, why would they choose to come work at an Amazon or a, a Seattle tech company? And the reason that most of them say is, well, I, I want to like Seattle culture. I want to be a part of Seattle culture. Mm-hmm. I want to go to shows. I want to be a part of the the vibrant kind of musical cultural milieu that doesn't exist in san jose and has been in a lot of ways priced out of san francisco 
Like yep. you can't you can't start a band in San Francisco now. You're it's five thousand bucks a month for a one. As long as you're willing month. to live closer to San Jose. <laughs> <laughs> now you'd be in Oakland. Yeah, you'd be in Oakland, right? Which is a, a real city. Oakland is a fairly fairly real city. It's and a Oakland's, super real city. Yeah, o- Oakland's getting uh, priced out too. It's hard oh, yeah. to live there. So so you and I think we make that economic impact. Uh, argument to the mayor all the time like listen the, when people fill out surveys why did i move to seattle music is always right at the top of the list but again it's intangible right i you know i i have so many blind spots and cataracts in my life but i feel like two giant cultural holes in my life uh probably to my detriment are video games and sports and uh video games I, there's a couple video games i play on my phone but compared to anybody my age or younger, completely off my radar screen. I just, it's, it's really, and it's not even like a hostile thing. With video games, it really isn't just an, I, I'm not interested. Like it's, I don't want to say I don't care. I don't care about sports. I'm actively against sports in some ways. <laughs> but those two things, failing to really grok what those two industries, Uber industries really means to stuff. When I, when it does occur to me, I realize how dumb I am. Cause I had never put sports even in the same, I never, I just don't think about sports. It just doesn't, I just, I mainly I think about sports when somebody mentions sports and I go, why are you talking about sports? That's really dorky. But in this case, it's so interesting to think about how much money passes through that town whenever there's a sports game going on. It's a, it's really amazing to think about because you, you think about something like convention and, and visitors bureau, right? Where you get all this big hit of like 5,000 people are going to come and stay at all these hotels and stuff like that. But it, it, I'm guessing, I mean, your sports teams do pretty well, right? Uh, let me see our sports teams. Um, did you guys just win a, you guys won a big thing in the last year, Yeah, there was a big Super Bowl that we won. Okay, sorry, sorry. I'm sorry I was, and, and, uh, you know, see, this is the problem. One of the teams that we, uh, that we massacred, that we really just destroyed, humiliated, in fact. Yes. So that the city that that team hails from has to spend the the next year just reflecting inferiority. Yeah, it was okay. that's. I'm really sad now. That's really <laughs> rough. Um, <clears throat> my civic pride is at an all time low. Now that I've learned we lost the Super Bowl, there there are a couple of people I think that listen to this show. Even they play that game to see how long you can go without learning who won the Super Bowl. <laughs> no, no, no. There are a couple of people who listen to the show who are right now so mad yeah. at me that I have reminded them. Oh, that's that the power Sam- of podcasting. <laughs> Um, so anyway, but the, but the, you know, the thing is, it, it is fascinating to think about because, because, you know, in my head, you go, oh, like Seattle, let's take our, let's take our, um, you know, when you think about why you bring a convention to a town, I bet there's, oh, it's, it's probably like an iceberg where we only see the top 10% or whatever. There's probably so many different dealings and things that go into why somebody ends up in Las Vegas versus New York versus Philadelphia or wherever. Right. But if you had to like socialize it with your group and go, hey, you know, we could do this in Seattle. Right. And their sports ball team uh, won the Uber Bowl. Like, uh-huh. we should go there. And they'd be mm-hmm. like, yeah, we could totally catch an Uber Ball game. That we'll we should go there. Go- we'll see some Uber Ball. We'll yes. watch the guy throw the fish. I'm being dead serious in we'll my own not serious way. Well, yeah. Or you might go, oh, yeah, Seattle. That's where they, the music came from and the Black Hole Suns and whatnot. But, right. like, that'd be a great name for a band, by the way. The Black um, Hole Suns? The Black Hole Suns, S-O-N-S. Hello! Can you capture that? <laughs> Somebody write this down. <laughs> I heard... Did you just recently mention... Uh, that song, that, um, all right, all right. Didn't you mention that song recently? What's it called? What's the first hit? 
uh, closing time. Now, (laughs) (laughs) you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. (laughs) No. Chris Cornell, the band Soundgarden. What's the Soundgarden? What's their first big hit? First Soundgarden big hit? Well, you're talking to somebody from Seattle. I'm going to say a very different thing than you guys. Sweet Maui Onions. God fucking damn you, John Roderick. Somebody asked you in an interview, like, what you think of when you think of Seattle music, and you pulled this song straight out. What's the one song? No, you know the one I mean. The first big hit from the... Fuck you. Uh, uh, so frustrated. Uh, was it? Um, uh, not outshine. Outshine? No. no could have been an outshine. No. Was it, what's, what's the was first it, one? Um, what's the first one? The first uh, big hit single. Rockstar. Was it uh, Macarena? Sister Anne's in the garden, watering <laughs> and mother's dahlias. <laughs> You know that guy. You know that guy, right? I do know that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, people think about Soundgarden. The lines across your face are drawn with hate. Um, It's got the it's got the big riff. Oh, you know, I'm Um, I'm cutting all this out. That was not their first big hit. That was later. But it's from their, it's from their Bad Motorfinger album, right? Well, I've really derailed myself. We got away from cops. We got away from Uber Balls. <laughs> anyway, like if you said... <laughs> so somebody, the thing is, though, you get 15 of these people in a room and go, hey, should we do it? Uh-huh. In Seattle, like one of them is going to go, hell yeah, Lemon son, and everybody else is going to be like, no Uber ball. Like they've got to be, you know what I mean? That's like, that's. Well, and you think about that 50,000 people all, like 50,000 people divided by four because they come in cars. And when you're doing well, you're like capacity every week, probably. $25, $35 per car to park. Oh, fuck. And then everybody gets a wiener dog. Kettle corn. Everybody gets a kettle corn. There's people drinking beers. There's all the jerseys they're selling. It's massive, massive money wave every time one of these ball teams plays. I just confused Pretty Noose without Shined. Yeah, Pretty didn't Noose. Didn't I? I just did that, didn't I? I'm so sorry. You I did. just did that. Pretty Noose is a pretty, pretty noose. Pretty all right. Yeah. Fuck. That was, you know, the, the, the Ben Shepard bass era. I have to say, when they really turned him loose on his bass guitar. Yeah. Uh. Uh, that, uh, there are some very powerful bass riffs. The song I was thinking of was Outshined. So you got $35 worth of kettle corn, five people in a pot. They're all arriving for sports and Uber Bowl. That's right. A lot of them are staying in hotels. Probably probably the 5,000 people that came Think for the, the advertising, uh, Magic the, the Gathering. advertising revenue. My it's God. crazy. It's crazy. And then all the kickbacks, <laughs> the all, the, all the, the pay, 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 pay. I, I, I saw this, I saw this uh, detail the other day. Uh, in, in association with the fact that Mick Jagger's uh, longtime girlfriend just recently committed suicide. That's so sad. It was a really tragic. And she's and taller than you. She was a tall lady, and 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 that alone made me like have a have a new respect for Mick Jagger. I you notice that when guys get to be a certain amount of rich and famous, they like these small people, uh, small guys. They no longer are self-conscious about their height, and they are dating women who are like a foot and a half taller than they are. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of admire that. It's like, wow, okay, well, 
sure why wouldn't you like this girl is amazing and also super tall and that's its own i mean the the pictures of them standing next to each other where she is like kind of leaning down it's like fetish porn it's like giantess porn crazy she's soup she's six four in, in bare feet crazy uh but one of the side details in all of that tragic uh reporting and and i really i really was astonished that he was he it seemed that their relationship was real and he was very he seemed really taken aback devastated by this yeah but one of the very side minute side details was that Mick Jagger was worth 200 million dollars i saw this note notated because in our in our uh culture now you have to you have to append to every mention of somebody famous their age, their age and, and also how yep, much they're worth 100% yes uh, Mick Jagger age 64 Estimated, uh, estimated, estimated worth, worth of two hundred million dollars. Yeah, and I, can, I can see it in my head. Yeah, that that little detail. The only reason it stuck out was I had just an hour before read an article that said that an Andy Warhol lithograph of some kind had recently sold at Sotheby's for one hundred and twenty-five million dollars. Something <laughs> like that. that's so weird when you put and, them next to each other like that. Yeah, and so that that's exactly right. I, and they're I, both probably made mm, within probably five years of each other. The, I mean, the, the career of the Rolling Stones and, right? and Andy Warhol. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it, uh, when I read the Sotheby's uh, story, and it was talking about like, oh wow, we got more than a hundred million dollars for this Andy Warhol thing. It sort of passed by unremarkably in my imagination. Like, oh sure, I guess. I mean, maybe I'm surprised it's not more. Or whatever, or oh, a hundred million dollars. I wish I had bought an Andy Warhol when they were only one million dollars. Um, but it, it kind of just was like, oh, art is priced X, and so I guess there are lots and lots and lots of people who have so much money that a hundred million dollars for a painting feels like i mean and clearly paintings like that are being bought for inve- investment purposes yeah like, like by institutions and stuff yeah. like that but i mean no I'm, i think i think i think the real buyers of that stuff are these billionaire software people and fi- financiers and russian oligarchs mm-hmm. who are buying that material as a form of one-upsmanship for one another mm. like i can't imagine an institution buying that andy warhol painting and justifying it to anybody for a hundred million dollars and he's police benevolent association <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah the secret talk a little bit about a new wall secret policeman's other art collection <laughs> it takes other balls but then but then i read this this uh this like completely sort of specious reference to mick jagger's wealth and then realized like oh 200 million dollars is less than the current Lotto. <laughs> Only you. The Mega Ball. You're almost, is, it's just right there. The Mega Ball is $400 million. Mm. And Mick Jagger stands atop a mountain, in my mind, with few others as a, as a person who like made his mark on the culture he's he's very important to me and he also feels like unassailably unreachably rich and 
successful. Even even accounting for what happened in the early seventies. Even accounting, because I mean, all, he basically their career started over in like nineteen seventy three. Right. Well, yeah, they, their money they was gone. They had no money, off. no rights, no money, no anything. Yeah. And even accounting for their like Mick Jagger's abysmal performance in that uh, in that documentary about. Um, oh yeah, about the rock concert there in San Francisco, the uh, uh, yeah. Speedway, the Mounting uh, Yard, the uh, no, Altamont, uh, Altamont, Sympathy for the Devil, Mounting Yards are Monting the Yards. people of of Vietnam. Alta Vista. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, he he was terrible in that movie, and it made me it made me. Let's do another take. <laughs> made me re- Let's do another take of me first seeing this ambition. and becoming shattered, Shadoobie. <laughs> <laughs> Can we all get along? Hey, <laughs> hey, man, chill out. Stab, stab, stab. Think about the number of 20... Think about how many 24-year-olds in the Bay Area right now have $200 million. No. I, I don't want to either. I don't want I don't to either. Get in fact, involved. I want to get involved. I want to rent a convention center and get all those 24-year-olds in a room and, and lecture them for a year. You know, like I, I want to have that power. I want to sit them down. I want to, I want to show them PowerPoint demonstration after PowerPoint demonstration. What does this have to do with the tall lady who died? What does this have to do with the oh, tall? Oh, it's lady just th- this is how you got to the two hundred million dollar part. Two hundred million dollars. Okay, part. sorry. Yeah, I, there are so many people now with two hundred million dollars who don't deserve it, who haven't earned it. Two hundred million dollars has become. And, and honestly, I can say that without fear of contradiction. Have not earned it. The fact that they wrote Flappy Bird app or, you know, were the, were the fourth... No, keep you know, riffing. The, I want to hear more, more things you know about the people of Maine. <laughs> the fourth... They were the fourth employee <laughs> of the fucking toilet brush app or whatever. And now they're worth $200 million. Fuck them. And fuck this, fuck this capitalism that makes this real. Yes, fuck it. Fuck it, fuck it, fuck it. It's, there's something seriously immoral about it. I don't believe it. I don't believe in it. I, somebody should be arrested. Yes. It should be somebody. I think after a week at your police academy, uh, <laughs> the one over by the library or wherever it's going to be, yeah. I think this should, they should maybe kind of let you know this is coming, but not, you definitely not get like an announcement about it. Yeah. But I think as the weeks go by in your training, Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easy enough to get in. You get into the building, you're fine. To the, to the police yeah, academy? Yeah, day to day, five days a week, six days a week, whatever it is. Yeah, the doors are open. But to leave the building, you have to solve a crime. Or maybe help someone. Like, you're not allowed to go home until you've helped somebody. Like, two random days a week, you got to go change a tire, or you might have to solve, uh, like, a, a deadly murder-suicide. Hmm. OJT, am I right? It's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a, like a scouting thing, right? Yeah. You can't just, you have to, you have to tie some knots or you have to help yes. a lady across the street or you have to yes. get your chip and tote. Hmm. Criminal justice meets snipe hunting. Yes. I, I, I feel you trying to, I feel you trying to direct my attention away from. Have you ever met a was, woman who's six foot four? Just about to solve. <clears throat> The capitalism. Problem. You were just about to put hundreds of strangers in a room <laughs> and do something terrible to them because they've made a lot of money. Yes, terrible, terrible. No, listening to me lecture isn't terrible. 
listening to I figured that was just the opening act. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see an abattoir yeah. or maybe fighting shirtless with garbage can lids. <laughs> <laughs> you would be the keynote speaker. <laughs> I would be. The, I would just be softening them up. And then you would you would come in and sweep up. Talking sweep up about the time remains. and attention and then encourage them to hit each other with bats with nails in them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Alright, we've bird. taken the top five video games and made them real. Flappy bird versus toilet brush. <laughs> you have to ZZ jump Top's over this they're playing live. <laughs> oh my god, ZZ Top played here in Seattle last night and I didn't go. Oh my gosh, I'm kind of surprised. I'm a little bit surprised too, but uh, it's have one of those s- things. Have you seen them live before? I mean, I know they're one of your favorites. I have seen them live and I was... The first time I saw them live... I got kicked out of the concert halfway through because some security ape uh, saw me drinking a bottle of peach schnapps and they booted me out. And I was, I, I was really upset. I was like, take the schnapps. There are people around me smoking pot. Like I've just brought some schnapps. Yeah, we're living in a society. Schnapps. There's levels to escalate. You don't just throw me out. You take the schnapps. They, it's like a they, warning they, shot. That's right. They grabbed me and they threw me out into the rain. So that made me mad. Particularly since it wasn't even like, it's not like I was drinking Southern Comfort. I was drinking peach schnapps. I don't even know what the fuck I was I mean, thinking. You might have just been off brand. Yeah, it was, that, it was the era. Uh, and then the second time I saw him, it was like at a county fair. Oh. And Billy Gibbons had that thing. I've seen Tom Petty have this problem too, which is that they get to be a certain age and they're, they're very skinny men. Like Tom Petty is very skinny. Billy Gibbons also not not fat. Is he, would you say scrawny? There's a there's a kind of scrawniness, but what 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 I saw in both of these cases, and this is maybe one of the problems with standing backstage, is that their show costume is not made out of regular clothes. <laughs> By which I mean to say that. When they take this, when they take <laughs> like the stage, like a refrigerator box, <laughs> no, but they it's are a costume. Wearing, yeah, they're wearing like their show pants, and their show pants are made to look good from fifty feet away, but really they have elastic waistbands, <laughs> like they are sweatpants. They're sweatpants. Like a that, long day of RV driving ahead of. <laughs> yeah, they're sweatpants that have been tailored. What's these like Mike like, Mills pants? These are like spangly. I'm a rock star pants, but with like a comfy, elastic waist. Yeah, I mean they're like they're like black pants that are made to look like they are stovepipe cowboy pants, mm. like gun gunslinger pants, but with a little bit of stage presence. With a little, yeah, they got a little stage stiffness, but when you see them. Up close and from behind, you realize, oh, these are like, these are comfort waist pants. And because all, because everybody now is wearing uh, in-ear remote radio monitors or whatever, everybody's got a little box, a little like uh, radio receiver on their belt loop. And that tends to pull down the elastic. Oh, no. So you get a little glimpse of the small of tom petty's back or the small of billy gibbons's back and it's just and the small of their scrawny little back is like covered with a little tangle of white 
ass hair. <laughs> and, <laughs> what a horrible sight. And it just feels like oh. nobody warns you you're going to see Billy Gibbons' ass hair. <laughs> I don't, I never wanted to see it. <laughs>